Welcome to the Royal Shakespeare Company. Welcome to Interval Drinks, a podcast by the Royal Shakespeare Company, in which we talk to artists who inspire us. This is a treasure trove of stories and adventures that we get to look after and we pass it on to the next generation. There's just an invitation going out to an audience to think these things are different to what they are. I've never experienced a room that has broken down hierarchy in such a joyful and radical way. Radical is exactly the word, and that word gets thrown around a lot, but this is truly radical. Have you collected your drinks? Then let's begin. Catching up in the interval this week is director Autry Banaji with Lucy Ellenson. What do you think they've been watching? Hello and welcome to Interval Drinks, the Royal Shakespeare Company podcast in which we talk to artists who inspire us. Today I'm delighted to welcome Lucy Ellenson, who has inspired me ever since I started directing professionally in 2017. Lucy is an actor and theatre maker specialising in devised and experimental performance and international new writing. She has been, among many other things, an associate artist with London's Gate Theatre and a member of Third Angel, Deaf and Hearing Ensemble, and a core artist with Forest Fringe. Her notable stage credits include Patient Griselda in Top Girls of the National Theatre, Macbeth in the Royal Exchange Theatre's production of Macbeth, and the pilot in the smash hit one-woman show Grounded by George Brandt. Lucy's long-standing commitment to experimental devised collaboration is tied closely to her politics and her activism. She teaches and makes political and participatory contemporary performance, looking at community, austerity, and protest. I first became aware of Lucy's work when I saw Tory Corps at Summer Hall in Edinburgh in 2015, made with Chris Thorpe and Steve Lawson, which totally broke my heart and opened my eyes to what theatre could offer as a political tool. I was lucky enough to work with Lucy back in 2017 um, in Manchester's Royal Exchange and the Lyric Hammersmith with the production of Jubilee. Lucy, first things first, um, we're at the interval of a show. Um, we're going down to the bar. What am I getting you? What is your interval drink of choice? Oh, do you know, I, I have never had one of those fancy interval drinks that you order before you go in to see the beginning of the show. I, I've, I remember seeing, you know, these little glasses with little kind of tags underneath them. Um, I'm thinking that's the poshest thing I've ever seen, ordering your drink for half time, you know. <laughs> so I've never actually done that. But if we're going to go fancy, then I want a ridiculous cocktail in a pineapple, you know, with multiple straws and uh, umbrellas and all the rest of it. I want it to be, I would like it to be a carnival float of a drink. Um, but failing that, I think about actually what I do do a lot of the time, which is see work by companies. I love um, Commonwealth in Bradford and uh, Slung Low in Leeds and often their work it can be outside um, often, but wherever they do, they always sort of like host a really fabulous evening. And sometimes that includes a hot meal. So maybe it's actually a big bowl of soup. A big bowl of soup. Yeah, you don't, you don't want the sort of the pineapple cocktail to obscure the view of the people sitting next to you in the second half, do you? So. <laughs> exactly. Put off the actors. No, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I think I'm really boring. I think I just get a glass of red wine. <laughs> You're a classy man. I'm a classy man. Yeah. What was the last interval you got a drink at? I have actually watched a lot of work, uh, of course, over the past couple of years with the pandemic online, um, mm. where I've been able to sit there and enjoy interval drinks all the way through <laughs> the show. You know, really kind of like uh, enjoyable, naughty kind of experiences of crinkly sweets that make a lot of noise that you would never dream of doing in a <laughs> yeah. theatre. So, um, in fact, I would say 
I've probably enjoyed uh, yeah a lot of noisy drinks and snacks uh, through the online experience. And I, there is a serious point there, I think, which is about digital theatre and, and stream performances, which have enabled people to watch theatre. And as we as we have our doors open now and people are talking about the pandemic in the past sense, there are a lot of people who can't come back to auditoriums. Mm. So that online experience, yeah, I, I, I hope that we can hold on to that because that's another way of like keeping our audience with us and sharing the work. It's so interesting to note how sort of rituals and cultures have, have changed in the last few years post-pandemic. And mm. I saw this amazing show by um, Nigel Barrett and Louise Murray, who I believe you know as well, um, they did a few things online during the pandemic, which even through the Zoom rooms, they were inviting interactive performance and audience participation. I think one of them was called Party Skills for the End of the World, which they'd done for the Manchester International Festival a few years before. And it was kind of astonishing in the depths of 2020 to be in my bedroom, still communing with people from all over the world. I sense people are nervous about coming back to the theatre. And I think also shows that don't have intervals is often a good way to bring, <laughs> bring people back to the theatre. Um, so yeah, we're querying the premise of the podcast, but that, I think that's okay. But a bit of interrogation is, is always good. I shouldn't destabilise the whole concept for the podcast, should I? That's not, uh, that's not what I intend. But theatre comes in all shapes and sizes. Um, and if you're keeping audience experience a priority for what you're making as an artist or as a, totally. as a provider, then... All shapes and sizes needs to be in your programme, I think, uh, to make sure that everyone feels invited. So Lucy, as I mentioned in my intro to you, we worked together a few years ago um, on a show at The Exchange, but I was aware of your work from before that with Tory Call, which you had made with Chris Thorpe, um, who I also know and I also love. Um, and I've always been, one of the reasons I want to speak to you on this podcast is in light of what we're saying in terms of the pandemic and in terms of coming back to theatre, I've been feeling a pressure on my part to sort of more, more closely align my politics or my activism, if you want to call it that, with my art. And I've always been inspired by the way you do that. And I think more specifically in the RSC's new season, I'll be directing a production of Julius Caesar, which goes on tour to nine venues across the country and incorporates a community ensemble as part of the show. You played Puck in A Midsummer Night's Dream um, a play for the nation, which was kind of the first time the RSC tried this sort of model of work. So I thought over the next um, 25 minutes, half an hour or so, we could just maybe delve into sort of your career, your interests, and your, what your experience was like with the RSC, um, and just sort of where you sit now today as a person living in the world on, on that threshold of art and activism. Could you just tell us a little bit about your journey into theatre? Like, um, what were your early career experiences? Who are the people in your life who have inspired you? Just talk me through the journey of Lucy just starting out, what that was like. I found a, a passion for theatre in a youth theatre context. This is going right back to being an A-level student. Um, I'm from Wrexham in North Wales, uh, so my nearest theatre was Theatre Cluid. And I joined a youth theatre and got really excited by the experiences I was having of making work and doing workshops. And funnily enough, and this is really true, I had an experience of an RSC education workshop coming to my sixth form mm. college during that time. It was with the brilliant uh, movement director, Strew and Leslie. Um, and it was the first time really that I'd been able to sort of pick up bits of Shakespeare, but work it, you know, work it to a level where it felt a bit more finessed. Um, prior to that, you know, I, I had a copy of the complete works of Shakespeare from the works 
you know, this really cheap copy. And I try to teach myself how to unpick the meaning of those uh, lines of text by using the footnotes and generally sort of scrabbling around, not really having a clue how to start and not having seen very much of it at all. But in my A-level uh, education, uh, it was a time where drama teachers were able to take people to see live performance. And that's mm. not so much the case now. You know, often young people are watching, if they're lucky enough to watch anything at all, they're watching digital recorded performances because the budget isn't there to, to go and see live work. And that's a real shame because it operates on a completely different level, as we know. Um, so I saw stuff. The RSC education uh, team came to my sixth form college. I remember feeling so encouraged at the end of that workshop. I had some useful feedback, some encouraging feedback, and it made me think for the first time it was something maybe I could do. Um, I went to Leeds Uni. And I studied theatre. It was more theoretical and, than it was actually practical. It wasn't a drama training. And then I was sort of out there in the world and quite lost, if I'm honest. Um, so I'm not actually a trained actor. It wasn't something that I could uh, afford to do. Um, and I didn't have very much confidence and, to be honest, not much of a clue about how to mm. begin a career at all. And I feel this for young people coming up now into, into the profession um, who feel like perhaps they don't see themselves uh, in the work or, or know the pathways. Um, I got involved in making fringe theatre through a friend of mine reaching out and saying, I'd love to do something with you. I was also doing political street theatre. I was doing uh, campaigning work at the time and uh, having that element of kind of getting out there and working with unpredictable crowds of people was a really good place to test your skills and grow your skills. And as a queer person, I was also really uh, excited by drag and cabaret. So I was making appearances in uh, quite DIY kind of uh, cabaret evenings around London, which I'd, I'd moved to from the north, um, yeah, in the early noughts. So a real mix of places to learn and try things. Um, it, it, it was my informal drama training, if you like. And I do approach each project I do even now as another opportunity, another module, if you like, in learning. Um, and I think most actors do, actually, which is why we're all a bit hooked to the profession, because you do keep learning. You're in constant development. And uh, I've worked with some fabulous actors and directors who've taught me so much along the way. I think what you're saying is really pertinent in terms of you've identified some of those um, very first encounters that people have with theatre as being so formative and I certainly remember that in my own life. Um, I'm, I've got a show on in Manchester at the Royal Exchange, The Glass Menagerie, um, and I keep retweeting every time a school drama group comes to, <laughs> comes to see the show. We brought our year 11s and 12s to come see it. We brought our year 13 A-level drama students to come see it. And I think one of the things that I feel proudest of in terms of working with the RSC recently is that there is this huge commitment to education and to um, bringing young people to the theatre and bringing students to the theatre. I know you've worked a lot with like the National Student Drama Festival and, and things like that. Do you feel like that adds new dimensions to your work every day when you work with people of a, of a younger generation or people who are just starting out? Absolutely. Watching people's um, skills and confidence grow, which is obviously something I'm, is a desired outcome from my point of view as a, as a mentor. Uh, but also I just see the most fantastic work, you know. Yeah. I see... Uh, creators with imaginations that are not constrained by the way that we do things which I think accumulates over time I think you get a bit conditioned sometimes as an artist you know this is how you do it and this is the best way to achieve that and 
what you're dealing with, particularly with young artists or emerging artists, is questioning of all of that stuff and really powerful imagination and a willingness to sort of pick up the rule book when it comes to maybe the form of the show that they're trying to make and just chucking it up in the air and seeing what lands. And that for me is also why community involvement in work is so important as well, because the exciting possibilities for questioning what you know as a theatre maker is possible just exists absolutely in that expanded you know uh, collaboration um, so whether it is uh, emerging artists at the beginning of their careers or whether it's people from a different discipline perhaps or your community members who are making work in an amateur dramatics group packed houses full of creativity it's just a delicious new wide open space to question how we tell stories and and, and make our work better you call yourself a mentor in that and i think that's really true do you remember your own mentors? Do you have anyone in particular who springs to mind? Yeah, very much. Yeah. Um, I think mentoring is really important. Um, mm. In theatre, for sure, but in all across different types of professions, really. I think capitalism tends to make us feel like we have to do our best on our own. Um, and that's not the case. Joined up working, collaborative working is the way forward. Um, people that inspired me and were mentors for me were, oh gosh, I have such a, a dear friend who's no longer with us, I'm afraid, but uh, a brilliant writer and his writing is online and I really, gosh, you know, I really recommend it to people. He's called Mike Marcusy. Um, He was uh, an activist that I got to know when I was working for the Stop the War campaign um, when uh, Britain and America's illegal war on Afghanistan and Iraq was happening in the early noughts. Um, and he was a writer and a poet, um, a sports writer, a political activist. He was all mm. sorts of things and was somebody that I was working closely with looking uh, in that campaign. And he was someone when I was starting out my career and I felt very guilty because I was moving between theatre projects and then coming back to the campaign. And I felt like I was being torn in two directions. And he was the one that sort of sat me down and said, you can be both. You can be an artist and an activist. Um, those two things are going to talk to each other for the rest of your life. And he was right. You talk about you can be both an artist and, a, and an activist. And I've just, I've been reading a few articles by more visual artists, people like Ai Weiwei. It feels like that dialogue or that way of thinking is very prevalent in the visual art world. But I feel often in sort of mainstream theater culture, there's a shying away from it. I strongly feel like you can be both an artist and an activist, but I just wondered whether you could maybe talk a little to what that means for you. The show that I first saw, Lucien, was a show called Tory um, which I saw in Summer Hall in 2015. And, I mean, I won't describe it. Maybe, Lucy, maybe you could say a few words about what Tory Corps was and what that is, if it still exists. Well, unfortunately, it does still exist. It's a piece of work where we took uh, verbatim texts from the Tory government. Um, we, this was actually in the first sort of um, era, the David Cameron, George Osborne era, uh, we took the budget speech verbatim. We took forms for um, uh, PIP scoring, which is scoring uh, disabled people on their level of ability and therefore um, assessing their welfare payments in relation to that, which was a very, very failed e uh, experiment and harassed a lot of people. Um, so we were taking really the instruments of austerity the bureaucratic forms, you know, the, the, the text stuff, not so mm. much the rhetorical speech language, but the, the real kind of um, nuts and bolts, if you like, of austerity. And I would um, speak or death scream them over a sludge metal 
improvised sound score. Um, for people who don't know sludge metal, it's sort of a subset of, um, uh, of black metal. Yeah, we performed it at festivals, at the Gate first in London, in Notting Hill, um, Forest Fringe as well. And it sounds like maybe it's a, a piece where people are sort of like ranting on the microphone about austerity. And uh, I think that people's perception was that, but actually it was quite restrained. Um, we called it death metal Hansard for a while. Um, it was just uh, Steve Lawson, fabulous solo bassist, and uh, Chris Thorpe on lead guitar and myself on a microphone. I had the papers in front of me and I would just read it or scream it, you know, manipulate my voice um, word by word. Didn't add any polemic onto it at all. And it accumulated a, a, a huge amount of power um, and moved people um way beyond you know i had huge reactions from the audience really because it was a time where we could see that the cuts weren't necessary they were ideological choices made by the government and that the suffering that people were experiencing as a result of these cuts was really real you know a lot of people lost their lives during this period of austerity um 117,000 disabled people um and they were scapegoated and the Economic violence of those texts was something that we wanted to bring to a to a sonic soundtrack that already hosts violence in its original form. Um, so that was what that experiment was about. It, it wasn't always pleasant to uh, perform <laughs> or listen to, I'm sure, um, but it had a catharsis, I think, for some people. Um, and we haven't done it for a while because, in a way, I feel like world events or events you know, from the government have always been too hard to keep up with. Um, but that violence is still ongoing. So until that's, until that's gone, we'll, we, we will keep that project alive. There was a moment in the show where it was a one minute rage because a one minute silence isn't good enough. I was still a student. I was in my, I think in my third year at university when I saw it. And I, I didn't know whether I wanted to go into theater professionally or not. But I remember seeing that show and, and thinking that I did because it completely broke my heart when I saw that. One of the things that has inspired me most is sort of trying to bring the thrust of some of that experimental devised live arty field into the classics, because I think that's a really, really exciting way of making the classics feel relevant and like they speak to today and like they speak to today's concerns. Do you think doing plays from 500 years ago can still illuminate concerns about today, whether they're political, whether they're societal, whether they're about inequality or austerity or... Whatever, whatever they might be, or, climb, or the climate collapse is something I'm thinking um, a lot about these days. Um, where, do you, where do you find yourself in, in that discourse? I'd certainly think that the body of work that, that we attribute to Shakespeare is robust enough to pick up, remix, remodel, provoke, pull things out. This is... These are plays that have been with us for a really long time and have time and time again reflected back to us who we are in, in that present moment. In, my, in the earlier part of my career, there was a lot of sort of commentary around, you know, we've got to keep respectful of certain ways of doing things with Shakespeare and um, as, if, as if somehow it was all going to magically disappear if you did try to experiment with it. And I, I just don't buy it. There's something that, Erica said, uh, as director of Midsummer Night's Dream, um, to a group of our very young fairies who were school children, we worked with, 
think it was nearly 500 school children across the UK and they played fairies. Each place we sat down on our national tour of that particular production, we'd have a new intake of um, school children and young people who were playing the roles of the fairies. It was a group in Bradford. We were in the Alhambra Theatre, massive, massive theatre. And most of these um, children hadn't been inside a theatre before. And she said to them, this is a collection of stories that we get to look after. This is a... Uh, a treasure trove of stories and adventures that we get to look after and we pass it on to the next generation. And I watched those children's faces light up at that thought. It was thrilling. And that's how I feel about Shakespeare. I I don't think um, creating kind of orthodoxies around how you handle it is particularly useful. Um, Audiences will respond in ways that are... uh, very real and instinctive and you'll get a sense of what is fascinating what isn't from the feedback that you get from people who are coming to see the work scholars can look after it doesn't need to sit in a glass box we can be playful and I think the work originated from playfulness Um, Shakespeare and the actors involved in those ensembles making those shows it came through invention and play um, and it has to be given the oxygen to reinvent itself because um, that's where its power lies. And of course, it's not just Shakespeare. It's, um, it's Gilgamesh, it's uh, Beowulf, it's uh, mm. the Iliad and the Odyssey, you know, these, these ancient texts that we get to pass on and, and play with and, and use to reflect something of ourselves as a way of, I hope, caring for one another and relating to one another more, more compassionately as we, as we go forward. So just to sort of take the conversation a bit more directly to Midsummer Night's Dream, could you talk a little bit how you got involved with that and what your experience was like with that show and going on tour with it? Yeah, I it, it's I think it's my favourite thing I've ever done. Um, really? Yeah, I do. Um, I had no, to be honest, I, I didn't have huge aspirations to to work on Shakespearean productions. Um, prior to working on that project, not because I, I didn't um, love and respect the work more, it just there was a lot of people doing it. So um, I was worked in contemporary performance and I was really happy where I was. Um, Puck, of course, is an absolute treat of a character, just mischief and living in that little blurry space um, in terms of uh, identity and gender and love and just just very questioning, interesting um, spark of a character. And so I was thrilled to, to be involved, but I was particularly excited about the involvement of um, actors all across the country, 14 amateur dramatics companies that played the mechanicals in each of the places that we visited on tour. Uh, because that amateur dramatic tradition is alive and kicking it's absolutely fantastic and i'm a professional actor and i don't find the label of professional amateur particularly useful we're all performers we've all got a a deep love for this for this work and for sharing with audiences so for me this this was a really fantastic project um and also i think i have to say as well like it was the outcome of a lot a long-term relationship by the rsc with these groups in Mm sharing skills, workshops, you know, uh, a a long relationship of getting to know one another and, yeah, just providing resources really for them. Um, 
which, which I think is really commendable too. It wasn't just like a, a short relationship. It was, it was a, a long-term commitment. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I got cast. We had a professional company playing the court, uh, courtly characters, um, of course, uh, the kings and queens of both the mortal and the fairy world. And as we moved around the country, children would come in as well and, and be part of the, the, the Titania's fairy train. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, it held open this space for pa- participation and for surprise. Um, being Puck, I was... Um, uh, given a particular role of traveling around the country and working with those amateur groups on, on our scene together. And we would relay and rehearse using video call to try and sort of grow this project together. And then the actual reality of the tour was we'd arrive, work with the fairies one day and the mechanicals, and then we'd be on stage the next. <laughs> so it, it took a lot <laughs> of courage. Uh, you know, normally you have weeks to work together and get to know one another. And we'd we had got to know one another, but virtually, um, a little bit in person, but it was, um, uh, yeah, putting it together in a quite tight process just, before, you know, 24 hours before we went on stage and invited an audience. How, how amazing that I didn't know that, that you were sort of rehearsing on Zoom slash Skype slash whatever it was long before a, a, a pandemic ever hit. I think that's really fascinating that that is a model that existed. Because obviously now it's sort of de rigueur that we would sometimes rehearse on Zoom. Um, but I think what we were saying right at the beginning of this episode about improving access to theatre and improving access to, particularly when so much theatre is centred in London still, um, being able to being able to work remotely, I think, imagine, also offers more opportunities to, lit- to not just see work, but I guess to make work as well. And with those community companies, you use the word surprise. I mean, that must have been a amazing experience to be surprised in in the middle of like a long run and that must have felt so live I imagine absolutely I mean each each place we uh, arrived at as you know the, the trucks carrying all the equipment and the set and all the actors filing in it there was a a local imprint on every single version of that show um, we had a um, you know casting for the groups offered completely new interpretations for what those interpersonal relationships were for the mechanicals you know a young a young man in cornwall playing uh, bottom and then in canterbury uh, or in nottingham we had uh, women playing that role and it you know there were all sorts of um inventions and gags and music elements that the local companies brought into that work and Erica very carefully like weaved in so that it was represented in the scenes but also that the production as a whole was recognisable as it moved through its touring route and we had of course a period of time in Stratford at the beginning and the end of the tour. I should say as well at the end of the tour those companies came to Stratford to perform uh, on stage um, as well with us um, and to sort of if you like, essentially rework it all over again for a thrust stage. Um, so I kept seeing this this show sort of being given a new lease of life again and again and again. It was a lot of hard work, mm. but it did mean that people's ideas were respected and, in, and uh, incorporated into the overall storytelling. Um, and it was it's so well received. You know, people were absolutely thrilled. I mean, I... It's still ringing in my ears. I remember uh, Rebecca, who played Bottom in Nottingham, and we had a lot of school children in the audience uh, at the Nottingham Playhouse. (laughs) 
I could still hear them. They were screaming with laughter, absolutely screaming because of the physical comedy aspect that she brought to that role. Um, and we've become, we are friends, uh, all of us involved in that show. Um, I, I think about the fairies a lot. I wonder where they are now. Um, mm -hmm. But it has, it created a very strong company bond um, and something that I, I will never forget. And I was so happy that the RSC education was, was centered in that production um, uh, and that we got to see a bit more of that invaluable work that they do in empowering uh, young people as they approach Shakespeare, which can seem a little mysterious and a bit intimidating uh, when you haven't had that opportunity before. Um, uh, and to watch them grow as well. And you mentioned, uh, of course, you're doing Julius Caesar, and I had a wonderful experience uh, working on Julius Caesar with school children through the RSC education team. Um, oh, did you? Yeah. I, it was absolutely fantastic. And they, ha they can handle it. They can handle that text. And I was working with young children. Um, we worked with an abridged version of the text, but they were... They could get it in their chops. They knew what they were doing because the stories are so great. And we were, I remember we were getting ready with one particular school to rehearse the fight scene. So everyone was very excited. These are like six and seven year olds um, who were performing. And, you know, the excitement was a bit too much to contain, actually. You know, I think they all thought they were going to get <laughs> sticks and be able to whack each other during uh, this scene. But they were very disappointed that there were no sticks involved, no physical props. Um, but there were a lot of lightsabers and it all kicked off very quickly, you know, and um, everyone was sort of doing their own little bits and bobs and I could see this, this wonderful uh, play that they were up to you know, really happening. And I saw one uh, young one in the corner and he wasn't really moving, he wasn't really doing anything, he just stood there, so it looked like he was struggling, but I didn't know what with. And I went over to him and I said, you know, what's the matter? And um, <laughs> he stood there and he said, my sword, it's too heavy. And basically, he'd imagined himself holding this sword. Everyone else was like swishing around with their imaginary swords right around him. But he imagined his sword as being far too heavy to be able to lift up. And he was just absolutely caught up in this drama. And I thought, wow, your imagination. I wish I had a percentage of the power of your imagination. Because, yeah, that's incredible to me. Midsummer Night's Dream, I remember, one of our fairies. He'd been a young, uh, a youngster in that Bradford group, actually, funnily enough, and he always kept himself to the side, always a little bit stepped back from rehearsals. He was committed to what he was doing. He was working hard, but you could see his confidence level was quite low. I remember him really clearly because his glasses were always dirty, and so you kind of, I could never quite tell whether he knew which direction he was looking in sometimes. And I, mm. I always had my, just a little connection with him somehow. And anyway little bit withdrawn and we came to our first performance and the children were all fired up in the rehearsal room but by the time they got to the wings you could see them getting nervous which of course I can relate to I'm an actor um <laughs> but there you could see them all sink a little bit and it was so brilliant this young boy who'd not really said a word at all during rehearsals he turned around and he said right everyone we can do this and they all <laughs> grew about two inches and off they did and you know did an amazing scene at St Crispin's Day you know move over Kenneth Branagh he did the business right there with with that one sentence <laughs> and I've seen it so many times in that production and in others other theatres around the country where this work can actually 
empower and, and when done properly, uh, include and, and make that a long-term difference as opposed to a one-off experience, you know. So I'm really excited for you with Julius Caesar and, and how this participation is going to enhance your experience of it too, as well as everyone involved in the storytelling. The thing that I'm quite interested in, and perhaps we could talk a little bit about now, is we use this word co-creation quite a lot these days, or I guess devising as well is also a word that is used. I mean, I'm a director, and but I, I fundamentally believe every single piece of work is devised in some shape or form. Every process, every show is a process of co-creation. But for me, actually, and I'm going to be candid here, I've, the word co-creation, I don't, so I don't quite understand it. I, I don't quite understand what is particular about the word co-creation that is different from any normal rehearsal process. Like, do you, do you have a sense of what co-creation means to you? Yeah, I mean, yes, I do. Um, and I'm, I'm trying to challenge myself to be quite specific about when I use it. Um, for anyone listening, you know, the Arts Council... Um, uh, what? the Arts Council of England anyway, um, have a nationwide strategy which really um, encourages and embraces um, engagement with communities and and co-creation is part of that. Sometimes I think people use it when they mean there's an element of participation in the show. For me, co-creation is where you go right back to the very beginning, the origin of the idea or designing the process and how you're going to work together. It's taking it right back there and making sure that everybody is part of... um, yeah, uh, of making the project happen, not just being involved in the final outcome. Although that's not to devalue work where you're inviting people to step in uh, for an element of the show or for a part of the process. I think for me, co-creation, it's about respect. It's about listening to people. When I worked for the RSC on a piece of my own, a, a piece with a community cast years ago now, 2012, someone said to me, when I was writing the invitation for people to maybe come along and be involved. Don't use language that sounds like people are lucky to step on this stage, you know. This stage is for everybody. I was so glad to be reminded of that. And I was so glad to hear that from someone working at the Royal Shakespeare Company too, because it's a very celebrated stage. This is a place of listening. It should be a place of welcome. It's a place of exploration of difficult questions where people might have very different ideas about what the answers are. And that's what the experience for me of being in the audience is. And that's what I think, ideally, a really healthy process of making a show also embraces and supports. So co-creation for me is that, the principles of that, welcome, listening, multiplicity of voices. Um, And of course, the people who get to take part. Please Please take your seats. seats. The performance is about to resume. Lucy, thank you so much for um, being such a wonderful guest on this episode. It's been a real privilege to get to talk to you about these things and sort of, I I really hope um, listeners take away something positive from it. Thinking about the future is always important, I think, and thinking about how we can work differently. The director, Philida Lloyd, who directed a very famous Julius Caesar a few years ago with Harriet Walters Brutus said, If you believe that the way you make your work is as important as the work you make, then a rehearsal room is the perfect place to model social change. Um, And it's a sort of a principle that I've been trying to live by in my practice and the stuff that I'm making at the moment. Just to wrap us up, we're back in the bar. Clink. We've got got a third person joining us. Which person, real or fictional, would you most like to share an interval drink with? I'm going to ask for a group. 
um, people I would like to hear talk about the thing I've just seen, the first half. I'd love to listen to Bjork. Uh, Bjork. I'd have Angela, <laughs> yeah, Angela Davis. And I'd have Joe right. Lysett. I'd, I think that would be a really good conversation. <laughs> but I tell you who I actually would really love to bump into is I would like to see one of those fairies from Midsummer Night's Dream. I would love to. And it would be even better if they were like, I'm here to see a school friend of mine. They're on stage. That would be incredible. What a, what a great combination of people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, have, I had a similar answer. I, I had, um, just because I've been reading a lot of his work recently in the wake of his death, but Peter Brook, um, who mm. I think, I hadn't actually read very much of his work before he died. And I've been reading just about him. And I think he, um, he always asked the question, what's next when it came to his work? And I think that's a very good example also to live by. And the other person was um, Chrissy, who was in Era Era at the Marlowe Theatre and also played one of the rebels in Henry. And they had never stepped on a stage for 25 years because they had been scared off by a bad experience 25 years before. And we mm -hmm. tempted them back into the theatre to do uh, the Shakespeare Nation project. And their, their brain works like no one I've ever met before. So I think I'd, I'd want Peter Brook and Chrissy to meet each other for over a glass of wine. <laughs> Let's, let's just yeah. all group together. I'll get the pineapples and we'll, we'll make this a party. Come on. Brilliant. With, with the fairies <laughs> and Joe Lysert. <laughs> um, thank you so much, Lucy. Catching up at the bar next week will be current RSC artists May Mack, that's me, and Eileen Conant. Search RSC Interval Drinks to listen to more episodes, including Series 1 of Interval Drinks. Thank you.